welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, some months in preparation. Uh, um, my guest is Rob Walker. Rob is a writer, a columnist. How else? Brand expert, creative expert, writing expert. How? What other monikers can I add? I don't know. Nice guy. Nice guy. General. Good <laughs> egg. Um, resident of New Orleans. What do you What do you call a resident of New Orleans? A New Orleans Linian? A New Or New Orleanian. Linian. Okay. So, Rob, I know you've had a very interesting career path. Could you take us through a little bit of your journey? What uh, took you to where you are now? Wow. Okay. So I'll try to give the most concise possible answer. Um, I got into, I sort of discovered journalism when I was in college and realized that that was the path for me. I consider that a very lucky moment. I think a lot of people, I know a lot of people like sort of struggle with what they want to do. And I knew when I was 18, once I sort of found journalism, that this is it. So I was in Texas. That's where I'm from originally. Um, I moved to New York, worked for trade magazines and financial magazines all through the 90s. So I sort of learned business journalism, uh, which was not what I had set out to do, but it was sort of where the jobs were and where the where and where my interests were. Um, and I was working mostly as an editor in the 90s. And then in 2000, I switched back over to writing, started writing for Slate and for the New York Times magazine. Uh, and that's where I started doing the stuff that brought you and I into contact, which was sort of, of related to brands and design. I wouldn't I did. I, I can't say that I set out to write about advertising or branding or anything, but that's that mix of business and culture like found a nice subject area in brands and, and design. And uh, I wrote a column called Consume for a long time for the Times Magazine. Uh, wrote a book called Buying In on the same general subject. Sort of at that point, I was sort of thinking of myself as writing about consumer culture. Um, did some other experiments and some other work, wrote about work for a while. I had an advice column called the Workologist for the Times business section, Sunday business. Uh, and then most recently transitioned into, I did a book in 2019 called The Art of Noticing that is a little bit more prescriptive, a little bit less journalistic, a little bit more uh kind of built around the idea of here are things you can do in a response to attention economy culture and after a little stint at medium i'm now mostly focused on the art of noticing has a spin-off newsletter that is part of a substack pro deal so i'm spending the next year uh working on that and seeing if we can build that into a um, standalone uh business what was it that first attracted you you said you kind of knew you had this sort of uh, aha moment where it's this is it this is what i want to do what was that moment and what was it about journalism that um attracted you so much um it's a great question and something that I haven't thought about in a long time, but I used to think about a lot, which is that because it did just click, it was like this penny drop moment of like, this is it. Why? Um, I think because it gave me this framework to pursue curiosity in any direction. I was a naturally curious person, but I was also a super shy, like paralyzingly shy person. So it was difficult to pursue curiosity for me mentally because um, there was no framework. But journalism gives you this framework to bother anyone for any reason. You know what I mean? Like it just, if you can, uh, uh, to this day, I sort of can't believe that I can get 
uh, professors and these people, real experts on things to um, respond to me and get on the phone and, you know, boil down their years of knowledge into, into uh, uh, 20 minutes. Um, uh, so it was mostly that. And, you know, now I'm less, I'm more, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an adult, so I'm not as paralyzingly shy <laughs> anymore, but I still find that framework really natural. Like it's, it's, it's a great profession for pursuing curiosity. Um, it's a terrible profession if you're actually not curious and it's a terrible profession for many other reasons. It's a horrible way to make a living. I don't recommend it, but if you can, if you can make the math work out, uh, for me, it was just the perfect thing. Yeah. I, I, um, it's interesting because there's, you know, there's sort of this, such a parallel for strategists and journalism, I, I feel, you know, in terms of what I do, um, you, you know, your job is constantly changing. You have to have a curious and I would say somewhat naive mindset. I mean, yeah. you know, as you go and talk to your atomic physicist who's had 40 years <laughs> of uh, domain expertise, um, you, you kind of approach it, you actually have an advantage with your naivety and lack of experience that you can you can try and uh, pursue it in an interesting way. So I, I feel that there's a lot of parallels. Um, and yeah, trying, I think so trying, to con, trying to construct a story that people want to read. Yeah. yeah. No, I think so too. And if I, you know, I have thought about it often that if the world presented it to this day, I don't really understand how people like you find your job and like the, the, the journalism presented itself to me if being a strategist had presented itself to me, maybe that's what I would be doing. I have no idea. Yeah, but well, it's just yeah, it's, you know, an interesting, it's, it's an interesting story. I, I, you know, I never knew what I never knew what it was really until um, I kind of worked in a a consulting division of an agency where um, there were lots of people who spoke languages. I was actually the only one who didn't speak more than one language, oh. but there were people who spoke like six or seven languages, and they, they did all this amazing. It was really like a, like a, it was like, a, I don't know, it was like something out of a Wes Anderson movie. It was basically, we had telex machines. We had all these offices around <laughs> the world and we'd be getting information in. And it wasn't really the internet, you know, it was really sort of pre-internet. So it was like, sort right. of, we were gathering all this stuff and it was, we had a lot of physical material. We had a lot, almost like a library. Um, and we had phones, you know, we talk, we were talking to people and, and gathering, you know, stuff. And it, and it was, very, you know, we have um, L'Oreal, you know, one of our major clients would call us and say, what are women going to be like in 30 years' time? We go, wow, that's an interesting question. Yeah. We've got those very sort of uh, never-ending questions, you know, like and we'd have a team and we'd go and kind of uncover that. But it was always using, like, existing data, you know, we'd have, you know, We'd have a, a methodology for like looking at OECD data to work out, you know, the sophistication of various countries. We'd help the agency in global pitches. If you're pitching UPS in 47 markets around the world, wow. we'd create a little guide to each market. You know, so then we could plot on a map each of the markets and they would cluster them. So you could actually, this, the, the concept was you don't need to run 147 different ad campaigns, you need to run seven because there's actually seven different types of market. So we right. do that kind of analysis, super analytical. And then I went into the agency one day and I discovered there were all these sort of people sitting around having coffee and they weren't creatives and they weren't account people and they weren't media people. And I didn't know what they were. And they were just sort of talking about the world, pontificating about headlines. I was like, what, what are you? We're <laughs> the strategists. Well, that's really interesting. What do you do? Well, we go out and do original research we go and like take the pulse of the consumer we find what's on their minds you know and we turn that into briefs and then those briefs become ads i was like well i thought just creative people made this stuff up it wasn't like it wasn't like a process involved oh no no this is science so that's how i kind of uncovered it i didn't really know and think about it it wasn't it was just by talking to these people and i realized they were super interesting and, and over time i just spent more time with them and then they said well we think you're probably one of us. You could probably come and join us. And that was kind of like how that happened. 
Yeah, this brings up two things. One is the the, the person, the, like the one is the personal thing, which is that you know you meeting those people. I kind of always leave that out when I tell this story of discovering journalism. But a big attraction to it was um, the people who were doing it. It was it was like oh these are people like me. It wasn't just like it I I wasn't some oddball in my way of looking at the world. It was like oh here's like a whole number of people who and the, you know I I to this day what is the fret like some of my best friends are journalists like a lot of my best friends are journalists <laughs> they're cool people but the second thing that in our particular case and in my particular case that is connects me to what you're talking about is um and I'm sure you've encountered this and it's maybe worth talking about for a minute um a lot of people a lot of people are dismissive of the importance of consumer culture. Like there's just this kind of waving away of, oh, uh, like just people think like, I don't care about brands. That's all bullshit. Um, can I curse? Is that okay? Um, uh, you know what I mean though? But like people yeah, just yeah. don't take it seriously. Like this isn't a serious subject. And I, I, I just uh, by natural inclination have always felt like it's a very serious subject. And, um, you know, you can learn a lot about the world by looking at through at it through the lens of consumer culture. I think it's like, yeah, that was what, what was, uh, fascinating about your um, about your column because you sort of had that inquisitive desire to look under the hood. You know, like why are these people doing this? You know, what why right. does this ad look like this? There's something going on, and I think it might be to do with this. Um, I I feel there's such a um, there's this kind of resistance that people put up. It's it's almost like the shell that I'm not going to be manipulated. I'm not going to be persuaded. I'm a, I'm sure. a strong-minded, free-willed individual that is impossible to persuade. Sure. Um, and so you know you right. you go. Everyone to, thinks that. Yeah. And you go to do focus groups, and you know that's the the thing you have to sort of break down. You know, it's like. Okay. All right. Um, but yeah, you know, people, it, it's, it's always interested me where I, I feel that that's such a, what was some of my biggest learnings when I came to the States, was just really, really hard to get people to talk in, in very, um, I was thinking about this the other night, I was watching a, 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 a reveal video for a new Lamborghini. Well, it was, it's kind of interesting because it's the, actually, it's a remake of the Countach. Um, oh. and I remember talking to people about cars and they, and they couldn't tell you, I mean, the average person who I'm not talking to someone who can afford a $360,000 Ferrari, but I'm talking to an average person. <laughs> You'd say, what's the difference between Ferrari, Porsche, Lamborghini? You go, nothing. They're all rich people's cars. Well, do they come from different countries? <laughs> they, they wouldn't have any kind of, they wouldn't be able to articulate nuances or want to, or be interested. Whereas in the UK, you could get five kids from the street and they'd be able to talk to you probably for an hour about how those brands are completely different. Huh. And I, and I, and, um, you know, that was to me, the challenge was kind of like, well, how do you, how do you get depth? You know, how do you, how do you go deep and get something interesting when the desire is, to simplify and not people don't want to be compl get complicated so um yeah you have all these um you know you have to have all these techniques it's all like psychology you know it, it's it's how do you get someone to talk about something they don't want to talk about you know we said that with healthcare you know it's right like we worked a lot for a long time on health insurance and you just you can't say that <laughs> you can't say we're going to talk for two hours about health insurance because all you're going to hear it's just right. a high rate, high rate of negativity. Um, and uh, not productive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's almost like you're you're opening up the internet and saying every troll who hates health insurance come on board and, and uh, <laughs> listen to what you say. So did you? I mean, um, what what was your what were some of your biggest surprises when you were kind of looking at the world of advertising, looking at the world of brands. I mean, what, 
what surprised you in the sense that you, you could have got into it and said, well, you know, this is an area that is actually really interesting to me, but other people are interested in. What yeah. were some of the things that you thought were? I mean, I guess it's related to what we're talking about, which is that I kind of, I think that I kind of came to the subject, you know, I didn't start when I started out writing uh, journalistically and nonfiction, I was writing, you know, about music and culture and then to some extent politics and things like this. And I think that I was coming from the same point of view that I just was uh, criticizing a minute ago, which is that I was dismissive of, um, I think I was dismissive of brands and as that as a serious subject. So the surprise, and I can't, I mean, I guess what happened was when I was writing for Slate uh, starting in 2000, the editor at the time was Michael Kinsley and he encouraged, I was writing a column called Moneybox, which was about business broadly. And he said, you need a weekly gimmick of some kind. Why don't you write about advertising? And just, and it was, I mean, it was 100% his idea to say, write about advertising once a week and treat it like writing about the movies or writing about music, like treat it as a cultural subject, treat just, um, you know, like as, as a thing that his, his insight was, this is this form of culture that we all consume constantly and you know we're talking about 20 years ago so the nature of advertising and what advertising looks like has changed but i think this ultimate point has not changed which is that it is a form of culture that we are all consuming we may not choose actively to consume it the same way we buy a ticket to fast and the furious or buy the new taylor swift album or whatever but that doesn't lessen its impact and its pervasiveness and this has become even obviously more uh, pervasive now and sort of blurry, murky, to use a word that I like, um, in the era of influence, in, Instagram influencers and things like this. But he was, he, his insight was just take it seriously. And so this is a roundabout way to answering your question is that my surprise was that he was right. Um, and that I wasn't, I, I wasn't, it wasn't my natural inclination. I was one of the people who was initially skeptical of this as a, as a thing to pursue. And the further I went down the rabbit hole. So an early story I did outside of slate was about, um, PBR. And, um, I was just very interested in how, you you know, this was the heyday of PBR as a sort of cultural phenomenon. And, um, I was interested in how did that happen? And the surprises were in the disconnects from, from reality, you know, like it, PBR had this off, quote unquote authenticity from being connected to, you know, being brewed in Milwaukee or whatever. It wasn't brewed in Milwaukee. It was brewed. It, was, it had been long since been outsourced to a, a multinational. that was working out of San Antonio at the time. I forget who owns it now, but these, narratives that consumers would construct and uh, and project onto things uh i found really interesting which you know again flew in the face of a lot of not just not just common like not just conventional wisdom among regular people who of course always think they're doing the authentic thing but also flew in the face of a lot of what people were people in the marketing industry were saying which was the the crucialness of uh, of, of authenticity which I just found to be not really true in practice that um, authenticity can be helpful, uh, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And authenticity is ultimately decided in the minds of consumers. It's not decided in the history books or certainly not in advertising agencies. So that's a long winded answer to those, those two broad things were the surprises to me in, in, and, and kept me, kept me covering that subject area for over a decade. Yeah, I, it, it reminds, I was, um, I, I grew up, you know, being very conscious of advertising and, 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 and being a, a, a profound cultural influence on my life, it, you know, just because I viewed it as art. 
to me, the best advertising was art. Uh-huh. It, 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 was, it was so beautifully constructed and so well thought out that it, that it was right up there with art. You know, it was certainly up there with some of the television shows and probably even better at the time. And, um, you know, you, you would, you could in those days be such a powerful cultural force. I mean, um, Levi's UK advertising for a long period of time was, would get on the front page of a tabloid newspaper when it broke. So mm-hmm. you get something like, you know, 20% of the country seeing that story, you know, it's really significant cultural breakthrough. Sure. Guinness, Guinness advertising, you know, again, almost an art form. People looked forward to the next, it was like, um, and you know, the, the next series of House of Cards. It was like, what, <laughs> what's the next Guinness ad going to be? What are they going to yeah. do? Yeah, yeah. Crazy. And um, I think in America, it, it's, it's, you know, for all kinds of reasons, the, the proportion of good advertising is, is, is quite small. You know, it's, uh, when I, I'm just saying like TV advertising. So, you know, it's kind of um, hammer people over the head with a, with, a, with a simple message a number of times. It's sort of that sort of media barrage. Eventually people will, <laughs> it will, and, and I think that might be why we have that resistance because it's sort of like, it's about, um, consumers right it's not about people it's just you're a consumer who we want to manipulate you know in this sort of 50s version of marketing um that had been quite pervasive um and the the real creativity or real art or real humor you know yes it definitely there's been some brilliant examples of great american advertising through the years but um and even now, that it's sort of a dwindling art form, right? Yeah, but I, yeah, I, and I suppose that I mean I'm thinking of, there are some examples of, but I, I guess a difference between us is that I never came to it with that quite point of view. I I was always more of a cold outsider. I I never uh, I was interested in I was as interested in terrible advertising that. Effective. I did not see it as an art form. Um, I, I understand that point of view and I, um, and I, and in, in the abstract, I, I totally, I totally get it. And I can say, but I just didn't come from that. Right. I, I backed into it. Yeah. I definitely backed into it. I backed into it as like, I was someone who was looking around at what is, what, what makes culture work and advertising happened to be one of the answers. So I didn't come to it in, in a way of, um, but I like the way you're framing. I mean, it would be interesting to uh, to try to come up with there, there because there are some there are there have been some examples. I don't know if you can like some Budweiser advertising for a while was like a thing that was a cultural force that you you really wanted to know what they were going to do. Um, and in a funny way, Geico has uh, has uh, ha- had some success with that. I don't know as much recently, but. You know, I mean, there was a period when just the, the stuff they were coming up with was so insane. Like you were just, I mean, literally that, that caveman stuff became a sitcom. So, you know, um, yeah, yeah, there I, are, I was just there are fascinated by that kind of those thing. Are, those are a couple of really good examples. Yeah, I agree. But I, I'm, I'm sort of like going back to your PBR thing, which is sort of more like, um, it's more like brands, adopt, you know, you know, it goes back to our first point, which is, you know, I'm not going to be influenced by brands. I'm smarter than that. I've got a college degree. And, yeah. then, <laughs> and then you're drinking PBR at night with a, with a whole belief system that's completely fictitious, wearing your PBR trucker hat. And, and, you know, everyone's talked about, I mean, I'm sure Fortune have written like, you know, you know, 20 page articles on the decline of the brand. You know, oh, it's, People have got much way more information now, and there's all these, uh, you know, very yeah, academic yeah. arguments. And then you yeah. see something like Supreme, you know? right? The, the, the brands haven't gone away. They they just uh, 
appearing in different places with different sets of meaning. It yeah. just more more contemporary. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. People people are have been have been trying to make the case for the death of brands for as long as I've been involved in this and it's never true and it, it never will be true because and even like one of my favorite examples is people will bring up store brand like oh well uh the the amazon brand is selling better than the you know so therefore procter and gamble's in trouble because they're branded not really because what amazon has done is built a brand you know and uh you're not buying something from a stranger there was the, was the, there was the great um the great failure of uh brandless you know that that deserved a yeah yeah know, that, that was they had that nothing was all going. all built on that whole idea that that people yeah. brands were a tax right and 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 that you needed to remove the tax and if you remove the tax you would you know um but then you end up like Russia or something, you know, like somewhere where there's no, you know. Yeah. And for that for that tactic to work, you have to have a strong brand. And they didn't, you know. Um, they didn't believe in brands. They didn't believe in brands. So there was no reason to pay their brand tax. Like there was, yeah, because it, it ends up being like an absence of something. An absence of something is rarely a strong yeah, yeah. sales point. So... Um, <laughs> Moving on to the observation piece. So this is a relatively recent phenomenon. You, you, you were saying that it was the technological hooks that, or the hooks that technology had into us that you were trying to find an antidote to? Was that kind of the inspiration to? For the art of noticing stuff? So yeah. yes. Um, so the way that this connects to so coming out of the buying in book and the, all the consumer culture stuff, I had naturally gotten interested in, you know, technology, like obviously a big, not subplot, overplot of the, that world is how technology is changing our inputs and becoming overwhelming. And, you know, this idea of the attention economy. And so I, there, there was a period of time where I thought that the next, book that I, the, the, the sort of follow-up to the buying in book would be a book about, about the attention economy and about how uh, as everyday people were being overwhelmed with people, everyone wants, everyone wants to capture your attention. So you're constantly fending it off and not just, not just advertisers, but like, you know, your friends and uh, everyone, you know, on Twitter and everyone, you know, on Instagram and everyone's fighting for your mind. So I had envisioned this book that would be about basically the way I summarize this now is a book that would be about that problem. So it'd be 290 pages of that problem and then 10 pages of um, here's what you can do in your life to respond to it. And I, I spent a, a, a long time not writing that, like just sort of, you know, I had that general idea and I just couldn't, I finally realized I didn't want to write that book. I didn't want to read that book. Other people wrote that book and I'm glad they did. It was important to do. But I realized that I was just interested in those last 10 pages. And I was interested in, I had started teaching somewhere in there. And so I was interested in uh, something that was like, what are the assignments and prompts and games and fun things? And so it became that kind of book of 131 things you can do as alternatives to being, you know, to checking Instagram. <laughs> And so, you know, a lot of it inspired by artists and um, but but written as a very different kind of book, a more of a participatory. Here's something you can be involved in kind of book. So it, it went a long way from where I started with it and it took a few years, but that's where I landed. So in the research for that, what did that kind of involve, you know, trying to find those 131? Yeah. Yeah. What were, you, what were you looking at? Where did you look? So part of it came from, like I said, I was teaching. So I was teaching, I had started teaching. I still teach a class every year at the School of Visual Arts called uh, the Products of Design Program. It's a five-week class. It's called Point of View. And part of what I'm trying to get across to them is 
to trust in their own vision and to trust in paying attention to things that other people missed. Like this, this is the, the main theme of the class is look at, find what other people have missed. So how do you do that? Well, I try to, uh, the, the, what I came up with was like, here are a bunch of us, my editors hate when I say assignments because they find that word off-putting. But so there it's, it's the book became a mix of everyday things like uh, making a sound map. Some of them are more difficult, like making a sound map of your neighborhood, like find five sounds that define your neighborhood. So that's something you may might want to do with your kids or something like that. Mm -hmm. Some of them are as simple as like, look out a window, mm -hmm. find a window that you've passed every day for the last 10, like you've never looked out of and now spend five minutes looking at it. And there's some more to, and then like a week later, go back, look through that window again, see what you noticed this time that you didn't notice before. Some of them are more like um, next time you're at Walmart, because this came from real life. So where these things came from is a mix of real life and just a mix of being the kind of person I am and reading about artists all the time. Some of them are inspired by artists, but uh, at Walmart, I did the Walmart anthropologist, the big box anthropologist. The next time you're at that kind of store and you're usually when you're at a Walmart, you've got three things you need. They're in different parts of the store. You have to hike the entire acre of the place. So make it a game to what is the weirdest thing you can find in, you know, encounter in your, so it's things like that, that sort of try to convert moments of boredom or uh, oppression into moments of opportunity and discovery. And um, yeah, and that's what it became. And then the newsletter launched out of that, which was just sort of an extension of it. Um, uh, and it wasn't a direction I ever considered going. If I had, if you had told me three years ago that I would have gone in this direction for this kind of like, it's, because it's a little self-care-ish, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's not a direction I had ever thought of going in, but um uh, some of them are, it pulls together a lot of my interests in, in a, in a weird way. So it's been, and I've been thrilled with the reception to it. It's been, it's been a, it's been a good adventure. Yeah. I think it's, 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 it's really, it's, it's, it's awesome. Like in, uh, um, I like, I think of brain pickings, you know, like, yeah, these kind of awesome resources that just help you think a little differently about the world, you know? No, she's a great uh, uh, example to call up because some of the things, because she's very good at weaving together multiple sources from the arts and from philosophy and things like that. And I, I, I'm not quite on the same intellectual level, but I do have things in the book that are, you know, here's an exercise like John Cage, 433 mm -hmm. is one of the exercises in the book of like cover 430, you know, do a quote unquote cover of 433, meaning set your phone for four minutes and 33 seconds. And just, you can recreate, you can be John Cage yeah. and just spend that time, you yeah. know, and uh, listening. And I see it as an alternative. I see it as a fun alternative to meditation, which people often find intimidating and like, you know, meditation is like, I'm doing it wrong and I can't, but all you have to do with a four cover 433 is set your phone for four minutes, 33 seconds and sit quietly and listen and see what you hear and yeah. see what you, you get from that, you know? So Maria is an inspiration in a lot of ways of pulling that, those kinds of like highfalutin things into practical day-to-day -day yeah. life. Well, it's really interesting for me because um, I set myself this kind of assignment, personal assignment, which was um if i was start like if you think about my job which was um still is is to sort of um inspire creativity in some way right so you got to get people who don't really want to listen to you to listen to you and you got to give it <laughs> and you got to give them something that might be useful for them yeah um so they're very reluctant um i i had this thought that um the one thing I really hadn't done was to kind of understand the kind of science 
maybe some of the science and some of the kind of other pieces about creativity that we've learned a lot more about the brain in 20 years. Um, you know, that um, we knew, so I, I put this thing together called the conditions for creativity. I'm like, I was kind of like, the way I was thinking about it was, um, if you think of a sports team, they just kind of know everything about their athletes, right? They know what they ate for breakfast. They know how fast they can run 100 meters. Yeah. Um, they, 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 they know the sort of intricate details of how they should perform. But if you think creative people are the sort of athletes of the advertising world, we know nothing about them. We know nothing about them. Um, there's no very, very little institutionalized yeah. um, inspiration. Right. It, it, it's, it's everyone, it's, it's very competitive. It's a fight for yourself. Um, you know, bring your own tools um, to your work. And we don't really care. So you end up with this sort of mysterious black box that kind of yeah. is run by a bunch of guys who don't really want to talk about what they do and how it <laughs> works um, and don't want to admit there's any science or anything to it. And if you think about it, um, you know, I, was, I got really got into like a lot of sort of Eno stuff. Like he has this whole thing called the seniors. Yeah. You know, I, and, and I thought that well, that's just really interesting. It's like, why? The seniors is the group of people, like genius with a scene, yeah. genius yeah, yeah. plus scene. So you're Paris, people. Paris in the 20s, you know, yeah. London, right. New York in 77 or whatever. Right. Well, why these people never leave their offices? You know, they're, they're, <laughs> they don't talk to, you know, my point was that we're not creating, the, that we're not creating the conditions for creativity. Wait. So, what's the assignment you gave? You 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 started with the 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 you gave a self personal assignment. Well, to put this piece together, like to put, oh, I to, see. Put, to put a whole deck together to do the research to try and work okay. out what it is. Right. Okay. Well, that's yeah. the question. Is like, what are the metrics? I mean, I feel like the, I feel like the the question has been like, what do you measure? And this is a I think this is a real stumbling block, and I don't have an answer to it. But like when you compare it to athletes, like you can measure someone's hundred yard dash. What are the hundred meter dash? What it, what are the what are the um, things you measure? Um, and I think this is a problem in general for creative people, and a problem th that I have in reaching certain audiences is that there's a feeling of there is no I can't I there's no pie chart for me to point to. Um, but there, I mean, I feel like I feel like you know, noticing what other people overlook is the essence of, is the starting point of all creativity. Like nothing creative happens without that. But I, I, I can't like, I, I, I've struggled to have a data point. I can tell anecdotes, but um, I struggle to have the data point. So I don't know. I'd be curious. So well, I'm interested in what you're saying, but I'm curious you, what you're thinking. Yeah, about I think that. it's almost like a, that's almost like another assignment in its own. It's almost probably like another book, you know, uh, the the value of creativity you right. know for example there's this guy mauro at pepsi he's i don't know if you've come across it. he's a 3m he's like the head of design okay he's a italian he's extremely passionate brilliant on his feet and instead of having him as a kind of like oh he just runs the design studio you know in pepsi he's sort of like the creative in-house he's almost like a sort of a Giorgio Armani. He's like, he's like everything that we do from design, he's he's responsible for. So he's sort of like talking up the value of design. Okay. And so I don't, you know, I would I'd be sure pretty much everything he touches generates value. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, a certain bottle design or either, you know, it's either saving from a sustainability aspect or it's adding value somewhere. And I'm sure there are, there are a ton of examples there where you, you can pretty much um, build these cases um, where creativity is, 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 is linked, is linked to value. Um, I guess, I guess what I'd be curious and I'd be curious what you think about it is like how you then take that story and position it as something that 
encourages management of a company to encourage creativity, noticing, curiosity, whatever, on down the line. You know what I mean? Like, and, and it's because this borders on the Johnny Ive thing where it's like, well, he's just a genius and he's a creative genius. And so, uh, of course, his creativity is important. But how do you then translate that into like, well, how do we encourage people on down the line to be creative, you know, or to be? Yeah, and I think, even, I think Paul, I think part of the problem is in the definition of create in like, yeah, creativity is, you know, guys in black glasses with polo shirts on, you know, or polo, <laughs> you know, and that's not me, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it sort of has an intimidation factor. It has a woolly factor, which is like, oh, those people are kind of arty and yeah, and, and and you know, you got this. There's a lot been written about sort of logic and creativity. I think there's a I can't remember what the Greek term for creativity is, but it's almost like two yin and yang forces. Okay, the, the business American business is predominantly run on logic right it's about getting the burgers to the restaurant it's about right. the restaurant on time which is very measurable like there's a lot of charts you can look at for that so we're not comfortable with with creativity because it's it's just so all of my conversations with um with my peers about what we do and trying to distill that down to the essence of what it is is um calculated risk yeah okay so, providing people confidence that to, this is a creative risk that they need to take. So, well, uh, I certainly agree. Yeah. Um, but, how, but, how, uh, how's that going over so far? <laughs> well, you know, there are, there, there are, there are probably fa multiple failures every day and there are probably a handful of successes, you know? Yeah. Um, There's a Which is as it should be. I just, I just mean, how's it going over in terms of like, do you find clients are are receptive to that to that logic? Because I mean, that logic makes sense to me, and I feel like it's almost vital. But I feel like there's, there's more, and more about it. Yeah, there's a famous, like a, a really good example. Um, back in the '60s in the UK, J. Walter Thompson was working with a, a company that made flour, you know, as in bread flour. They were a bread. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. And they said, we have this excess flour. We make it, we're making too much of it. Um, what do we do with it? And their solution was to create an entirely new brand that made cakes and pies called Mr. Kipling. Okay. Which was totally kind of weird to this company, but it, you know, they created a business. They created a business which ultimately became a thriving part. Great example. You know, so, um, yeah, this it's 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 just there is an inherent tension that people just don't feel comfortable around creativity. But when you, but I do think there's another thing which is curiosity. I think curiosity yeah. is more accessible, and I think the best. You know, the problem with creativity is it's very very hard to define it, so you don't know what that output is, and some people could be scared and say, oh. That means I need to do something that's Leonardo-like. So it has an intimidation factor to it. Right. Whereas observation and curiosity is, okay, I've got to see the world. I've got to see something different. And maybe with that, through that process, I could actually make something that would be useful. Right. So I think you've got, you know, you've got companies like Procter & Gamble or like L'Oreal who spend a lot of time being curious and observing. Yeah. And they may not create works of art, but they might create the swifter. Right. <laughs> that came from observation. It came from curiosity. It came from wanting yeah. to understand. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think the problem with creativity is it, it's in some people's minds, that's a really high bar. Whereas what we're really talking about often is sort of a new idea. I think that's right. I, I mean, I think you're we're in alignment on this because of the curiosity has been my more recent. That's the current focus because which I see as 
So the book, the, the noticing book, noticing observation, attention, I feel like what's adjacent to that is curiosity, which I feel, I feel like curiosity is a, maybe a more active step on top of observation. It's, it's not just observing, but then further exploring. And that is maybe another step toward whatever you want to call it, innovation, creativity. Um, so I'm interested in that and in the, in breaking down those, those exact same no, there's another uh, there's another famous case back to the the um, design course for teaching, and I'm sure you've heard it, which is an IDO one, which was um, children's toothbrushes. They did a lot of observation watching children clean their teeth, mm -hmm. and they noticed that sort of their hands are so small, and they clenched them sort of really tight. Ah, uh, yeah, right. And then that create, they then they discovered that if they created a bigger handle on the toothbrush. That would just make a whole better brushing yeah. experience. Yeah. There's a lot of because those product design groups do a lot of that work, you know, where they're watching, looking, prototyping. For sure. Um, and I don't think you can get anywhere unless you do that. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, that's why I mean it's so it's no surprise that a lot of my thinking about this came out of design world stuff, which but the the funny thing is. So the funny thing is connecting those dots for some, like with students, they, they know how important those kinds of observations are when they've been, when they've been, I'll put it this way, when they've been assigned to like, watch how kids use a toothbrush, then they're like, they understand observation is super important. But when it's, when they're, when I encourage them to just like, pay attention to what you pay attention to, what are you noticing that no one is talking about? Not that you've been assigned, not that you've been required to look at, but what's just catching your attention? Because that's where the super opportunities are. You know what I mean? Like that's where, that's where entrepreneurship and things like that start. And I think that's super important, but it's, it's tough because it does run into, I think the, this thing I was talking about earlier, this attention economy thing is real where if like for young people in particular, they feel like, well, if I'm talking about something and it's not a trending topic, then maybe it's not important. And they they want the validation of the like the social marketplace. And the opposite is true. Like the the, the stuff that no one is trend that's not trending is where your opportunities are. That's that's the stuff you should get most excited about. That's what makes you uh, different, you know, and makes you uh, special. And I think that's true across creative professions in in general. Yeah, and it's just, you know, like, I, I think for, I think for non, I think, well, I think it's almost to me, creative people, people who uh, have made a decision to be creative, kind of live, live in a world where they may or may, I mean, they usually, they usually know what's going to help them, right? They, they kind of have their own codes. They built them over time. Um, but the, actually the work, real work needs to be done with the people who aren't creative. You know, to, to get that, I think it's almost like those conversations would be a lot easier if people open their minds a little bit more. And, you know, I, I almost think you're 131 um exercises or ways of observing you know would be a uh, given to every corporate executive in some major company and you know, <laughs> i'd be in like, favor of that yeah exactly i don't need to sell a ton of books but um you know it, it's just people are so um there's so so much blinkering you know yeah I, I don't even know if it is social media or anything it's just like people live in a routine you know and, you know, the first thing, I mean, the, the most obvious sort of like provocation to a, an idea is, you know, walk a different way to work. Right. I mean, I also read this thing that was a, apparently a book of someone said, like, walk around your block with a different hat on, as in you're an architect, you're a historian. Yes. Right. Yeah. Alexander Horowitz's book. I know that yeah, book. It's really cool, right? Yeah. So, um, all these things would just make people a bit more like, thoughtful you know and are just a bit more open-minded and a little bit more um uh ready to 
exact new ideas, you know, and uh, I think that's, to be honest, where the, where, where the problem lies. It's, it's, you know, we've got infrastructures in place that are designed to say no, you know. And yeah. I, a big thing for me right now is, like, everything looks the same. <laughs> you know, we're, we're reaching this, you know, I, I, I'm sure you've seen the whole blending, you know, the whole, you know, where, yeah. you know. DTC brands is everyone's right. using the same font and using the same photography and right. <laughs> all our buildings, all our buildings look the same. And um, I, I recently posted on LinkedIn. I was listening to this. Um, it was a couple of years old. This journalist, uh, Robert Elms, um, talking about London and how it's just like it needs more slums. You know, that was his kind of point. <laughs> It needs more rough edges. And he was talking about how he was, um, you know, when he was a kid, he was dating Sade and and how, you know, she lived in a squat with 25 other artists. And when she signed a record deal, the limo came to the squat. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But there was something about the seniors thing, you know, like the the fact that there was an artist, there was someone working in video, the, you know, and, and we get to this these homogeneous environments where you 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 push creativity out um, yeah there's nowhere for these people to live there's nowhere to practice and there's certainly it's harder to find i mean i i, I always find, i think new york is brilliant i think there's inspiration everywhere it's just it's just one of those places we've yet to be fully homogenized but it's happening and I, and I talked to, you know, uh, Faris Yakob, who's another strategist who, who became a global, I think he still is a global nomad. And I, yeah. I, you know, I interviewed him and I said, what's the biggest conclusion? He said, the world's the same. There's a Williamsburg everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that to me is, is like a, uh, that means you have to work that much harder, you know. I agree. And I, and I want to sort of scoot back a little bit to agree just strongly that like, I think I think it's incumbent upon company like you know I think that I th I think the big challenge is finding ways to for companies or clients or managers whatever point to to embrace experiments with creativity noticing curiosity whatever even if there isn't I think that I think that one of the big holdups what we were talking about earlier is that there's it, it's hard to point to a chart it's hard to point to the ROI chart and you got to get into this mindset that like you never really move the ball unless you take some, you use the word risk. Like I think this is a kind of good risk is encouraging that kind of creativity and curiosity, attention, noticing, however you want to frame it um, to shake things up. And like, as you said, maybe most of it will fail, but you, there's no there's no reward without risk. There just isn't. So, yeah, maybe maybe we're just a, a moment where um, you know there are 102 mattress companies, <laughs> and they all do pretty much the same thing. So, I mean, maybe it's just like there's so much capital in the world that you don't you just need to copy someone else's idea, and someone's going to give you a ton of cash. <laughs> so there's not a premium but obviously that can't last i mean that, that can't, obviously can't last but yeah. but i mean you know i've been seeing this i've been seeing others robin hood and now there's a thing called we bull it's exactly like robin hood yeah it's just another thing it's you know um so it's the flush with capital it's like well you don't need to do anything different because someone's going to write you a check for a ridiculous amount of money even if you have the same thing, because they it almost that maybe the perpetuates the cycle. It's like, oh, I missed out on Robin Hood, but there's another now. There's another one, so it doesn't matter if you copy, because there's plenty of people who 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 uh, yeah who missed out and want to benefit. So, um. Yeah, but you have to believe that in the long run, first of all, there's different kinds of people like the, the people, people like us. I don't want to I have zero interest in making a career based on copying someone else's <laughs> thinking. And there's lots of us who feel that way. 
And second, like the, 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 you know, the, those things are going to happen. The knockoff, the like copycat things, but that's never where the center of the action is. So if you want to be in the center of the action, you have to be, you have to be focused. You can't, you can't be at the center of what's, what's really going on and just be focusing on copying what was going on yesterday. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think, so, the other, you know, I think the other company to look at is Nike, you know, I mean, it has to be, you know, yeah. I mean, that is a legacy brand, you know, it's 50 plus years old. That still is at the forefront of culture. Yeah. I talk about Nike all the time. It's, it's a brand that I, I have mixed feelings about on a personal level. I would not, I'm not a Nike person, but on a journalistic level, it's uh, a masterclass, you know, even, even with their, they've recently had some missteps or whatever, but like big picture, their ability to be relevant in niche, like, you know, limited edition sneakerhead culture and to be relevant on the mainstream. Like it's, there's no one like that, uh, that I can, better than anybody. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing brand. Yeah. How you, how you can sell $65 white sneakers to grandmothers and sneakers to the coolest kids at the same time yeah there's no one else is doing that it's it's unbelievable it's it should be impossible it's like they're breaking laws of physics or something by being able to do to do that yeah and they're doing it and it's no joke like it's not like it's it's quarter in quarter out you know um constant for years it's amazing so um are you are you thinking beyond noticing what what's next beyond noticing well i hinted at it earlier i i I am i am doing a lot of research specifically into curiosity and in the sort of and in this in this iteration looking into research like hard research that's been done around curiosity and both in the context of how it of its business impact but also just sort of the basic psychology of curiosity I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. I'm exploring it in the newsletter, definitely, like excessively, probably over the next few months. And I think that would be maybe where maybe the next book goes. But there are some other possibilities, too. I'm I'm interested. I'll mention the other thing I'll mention is that I'm interested in. I don't have much to say about this, but I'm interested in this moment that we seem to be going through of people are calling it the great resignation or whatever of like a lot of people quitting jobs a lot of people basically rethinking career values because i did spend i did spend a long time being a person who wrote about work and career advice so i'm interested in this cultural inflection point i don't i don't know what to make of it but that's another uh, people are writing a ton about it so i'm monitoring that and yeah We'll is, it, is it is it um yeah it's the it's a it, it's significant moment it is a very significant moment i i um you know a cultural transformation with a with a changed mindset around work that yeah. has always been so central yeah I remember, I remember I've told this story a few times, but um, my parents knew somebody who, who was English, but she was working a, a pretty senior job out in, uh, in, in California. And she had a friend and her friend was the CFO of a very big retailer. And she was also English. Mm-hmm. And she'd been toiling away without a vacation for eight years. And she, and she goes to... Uh, the CEO and says, I'm going away for two weeks. The CEO says, if you go away for two weeks, don't bother coming back. Jesus Christ. <laughs> that always exemplified the most extreme of American corporate culture, the obsession with work. And then, then I did this, um, I was working for a, a French, the French wines division of a big drinks company. And they wanted to know it was all after everyone had been 
freedom fries and all that stuff. They wanted to know what yeah. was happening to people's perception of France. Yeah. And, and, and people just couldn't, Americans just couldn't get their head around France. It was just like, yeah, I'd go there for vacation. But how do they pay their bills? They're on vacation every day. <laughs> it was just like, it was a concept. It was like, they just didn't understand how a country could function where right. there were a lot of holidays, where people spent a right. lot of time eating their food, uh, right. had other priorities. Right. And, I, and, and I it's think a massive economy. It's not like yeah. it's not like France yeah. is some sort of uh, a boat boutique. And I had another, and I had a, and I had another moment. I was flying to Europe, and there was behind two American executives, and they were saying where are you? they were going to Spain, and I was like, "Can you believe these guys have the whole of August off? The whole <laughs> month of August? It's not just a few days; it's the whole month." And this whole like, and I think we, I think people have they, they've spent all this time, months with family, and it's just been such a. For a lot of people, it's sort of such an eye opener. I think that's right. The life yeah. they missed, you know, the life they that that their companies weren't letting them have, you know. Yeah. I just I've just done a really interesting interview with. Um, uh, it's not live on a podcast yet, but with one of the head creatives at Collins. Uh huh. Design shop, and uh, they have a remote work policy that, that everyone's everyone's working from anywhere they want. Uh, they they're just about to open a. A Brooklyn office, but it's very, it's like a library and it's going to be like a, a place where people can workshop. I see. Yeah. But they, he was telling me and we were, you know, we were saying, well, he said, I, I got, you know, we had one of our senior designers decide to go live in Honolulu because you want to learn to serve. And so he said, well, what's the, what's the assessment? And, you know, we believed in her enough that we let her do that. And it's proven that she's actually become a better designer by fulfilling, being able to fulfill her dream or desire, she, it's impacted her work, you know? Well, I think that underneath that, I mean, I think that there has been, as you're indicating, I think that there has been, and I don't think it's brand new, but I think that this period has accelerated it. I, I think that there's been, you know, a lot of thinking about what is really important and changing the changing the metrics and um, and companies, I guess what I guess what this moment has has done is that there's been enough of an acceleration of it that the numbers are big enough that companies have to think about it. So we'll see. So that's another topic area. It's a roundabout way of answering your question. That's another topic area I'm keeping an eye on. So I like I'm interested in what you just had to say that adds to that's consistent with yeah. what I've been hearing and learning. Going uh, just to, to come into the final, uh, the, the final finishing straight, um, talking about curiosity and, and inspiration, anything you would recommend to folks that they should be looking at, reading, hearing, Anything that you've come across that you? <laughs> That's a big question. Um, <laughs> An article you read, a book you a book you picked up and read a few pages of, or, um, or an area, another area, or just anything. What uh, must listen to podcast, must read anything, or are you just like vivacious? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll do a, I'll do a podcast recommendation that, or I'll do a couple of podcast recommendations that. Um, since we're on a podcast, yeah. Um, uh, one is, and I don't know if I'll be breaking any new ground with this, but one is, um, oh, uh, suddenly I'm drawing a blank on the name. <laughs> Hold on, let me look at this. Uh, my very favorite uh, podcast is Snap Judgment. Okay. Do you know that one? I've heard of it, but I haven't listened to it. So it's a storytelling podcast and it's just very unpredictable. And it's kind of in the vein of This American Life or Radio Lab, but kind of weirder. Um, I don't know how else to put it. The what, other one is um, kind of in our. What kind of stories would they have on there? It's just. 
Uh, so they are, um, they, that's the first place where I heard there were some stories from people in, uh, San Quentin, um, about life in prison that sort of became another podcast. Um, the, the stories of refugees, one of the recent ones I heard was the refugee stories, but some of them are more personal, just sort of, um, there was an incredible one. <laughs> there was an incredible one. I can't remember the producer's name, but it was about uh, him being in, I, I guess he was in college and hearing, overhearing uh, the name on the loudspeaker, Timothy Hitler, and being like, what? Is there a Timothy Hitler? And like trying to find that person. So just these sort of absurd uh, uh, adventures. Um, another, another one that I recommend if people haven't heard of it, and maybe, you know, this one is in our time, which is a BBC. Do you know that? Yeah. yeah. So in our time, I'm a big fan of on BBC, which is just like deep dives into historical topics. The most recent one is about Auden. I have been a big fan of Alec Baldwin's podcast. Have you ever listened to it? Yeah. Quite a few of them. Yeah. Yeah, he's a really good listener. It wasn't what I was expecting. He listens really well. He listens really well, but also I have to say that when he does butt in and start filibustering, it's always interesting. Yeah. Like you know, it, it's <laughs> so. Those are a few. Those That's are great. a few. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great little conversation. No, I had a blast. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, I'll let you know when uh, it reaches the uh, airwaves of the internet. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.